Will you turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4? Galatians chapter 4. And we have some Bibles that are marked at that page. The guys have some. They're going to make their way to the front to see if anybody needs one. If you need a copy of Scripture, just as they make their way back, get their attention, and they'll get one to you. It's unfortunately common in our day to hear detractors from the Christian message disparage that message by claiming that not only has it not been a force for good in the world, that Christianity has actually been a bad influence, say they. The late atheist writer Christopher Hitchens in his final book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. He blamed religion, including Christianity, for all manner of evil. It is certainly the case that awful things have been done in the name of God. But a fair reading of history would have to acknowledge the beneficial contribution that Christianity has made to the world. One author says this, From the wellspring of Christian compassion, our Western civilization has drawn its inspiration and its sense of duty to feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, look after the homeless, clothe the naked, tend the sick, and visit the prisoner. As another writer put it, missionaries and other Christians lived as if people mattered. Christianity exploded in its first century onto a brutal, heartless Greco-Roman culture. Believers in this radical new religion set a new standard for caring for the ill and the downtrodden, the abused, even at risk of their own death. Through their transformed Christ-like view of the world, they established countercultural ways that led to later innovations, orphanages, hospitals, art and architecture, and systems of law and order based on fairness, just to name a few. In the early church, every congregation had a list of needy recipients. Enormous amounts of charity were given. Pagan society, through its excesses, teetered on the brink of extinction. Christianity, however, represented a new way. The value of mercy ministry to the effectiveness of Christian mission should never be underestimated. The early church and the historical church have engaged in it because, hear this, our message must be backed up by the integrity of our lives. If we say we love, we must demonstrate love. The late Francis Schaeffer called Christian love the final apologetic. You know what an apologetic is. It's not I'm sorry. It comes from the discipline of apologetics to defend the faith. And he said the final defense of what we believe for the Christian message is the demonstration of Christian love. Jesus engaged in mercy ministry, very obviously. In fact, if you even look at the miracles that Jesus did, it's interesting that in those miracles, Jesus was not only interested in authenticating the message that he proclaimed by demonstrating his, his power. That was certainly a major part of it. But each of his miracles also had a humanitarian benefit to it. Jesus used his power for the benefit of other people. And today is Adoption or Orphan Sunday. And I'm delighted for us to have this time then to review why our church should be a community of care. 
there is a great and crying need that we as a community of believers can help to meet. You heard some statistics just a bit ago on the video, or saw on the video, that apply to the state of Michigan. Here are some statistics nationwide. More than 800,000 children pass through our country's foster care system each year. There are over 500,000 children in our foster care system now. 130,000 of those children are waiting to be adopted. Approximately 25,000 children age out of the foster care system each year, many of them with no support system and little to no life skills. And how many total children are adopted each year? About 120,000 children have been adopted every year since 1987. More than 50% of all adoptions are handled by public agencies or they come from countries outside the U.S. More than one-third of Americans have seriously considered adopting, but hear this, no more than 2% have actually adopted. Only 4% of families with children, and there are 1.7 million households with children, contain adopted children in them. So there is a great need. And our church should be a community of care for the reasons I want to list for you in the outline that's inserted in your program. I encourage you to take a look at that. And I say on that outline, our church should be a community of care because, first of all, it reflects God's character. To care reflects God, reflects who He is, reflects what He is like. And remember, we were made to reflect God's character. Just a very quick reminder that we were created in His image. We were created then to show God back to God. His glory, a word we use very often but don't often define carefully, but as I've tried to say many times here, God's glory in Scripture is His character. And so to glorify God is to display what He is like. If we are going to glorify God, then we're going to have to display God not only back to God but to a watching world as well. But sin keeps us from doing that. And that's why the Bible says this about sin, that all have sinned and fall short of the character, the glory of God. The marred image that we now have because of sin, thanks be to God, is being restored, though, in those who are born again. We are born naturally with this marred image, but now God is remaking that image. And we're now given God's character to reflect, and that's what the Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians 3. We who reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. Peter said this about this new nature that we have been given that should reflect itself in the way we act. You now participate in the divine nature, so display things like goodness and godliness and mutual affection and love in increasing measure. We were made in the image of God, meaning we were made to reflect God back to God. Now, how does that happen in creatures like us? We're not God, so how do we do that? Well, if you pick up any book that is the study of God, uh, that's literally what the word theology means, a theology book, the study of God, it will divide the character qualities of God, His attributes, into two major categories. And the names of those two categories will be different depending on the particular theology book you pick up. But the distinction is always the same. It might be the character qualities of God's greatness versus those of His goodness. Or it might be those of God's 
communicable attributes and those that are incommunicable. What is it? What do both those mean? There's a category of God's character qualities that are His and His alone that cannot be emulated by anyone else in the world. Only God is sovereign. Only God is omniscient. Only God is omnipotent. But then there's another category, those of His goodness or those of His communicable attributes that can and must be reflected in those that He has made in His image. And that's why the Bible tells us that we must reflect in this goodness, this affection, this love, because these are attributes, qualities of God that we must show to Him and to others. Now hear this. To represent God without reflecting God, is to misrepresent God. To say that we represent God without reflecting the character of God is to distort that God and the message that goes with it. And so why is it that we should be a community of care? Because it reflects God's character, something we were made to do and something we are now being remade to do. Now we see examples of that in Scripture see a number of ways in which God tells us, I am like this, I do this, and now you do likewise. And I have some of those listed for you in your outline. We love because God does. The Bible says very straightforwardly, we love because He first loved us. And remember this, dear friends. Love is not just a concept. Love is a, a verb, an action verb. Love requires that we do something. It's something that God does because of who He is by nature, and it's something we do because of the new nature that God has given us as His people. So we love because God does. Secondly, we forgive because God does. The Bible tells us, forgive each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So God initiates love. God initiates forgiveness. And then we are to model that. We are to reflect that in our character and in our lives. We love because God does. Forgive because God does. We accept others because this is what God does. as a reflection of His character. The Bible says accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And Jesus, in accepting those that he brings to himself, the Bible is replete with passages that say he did not look for the lovely. <laughs> he did not look for the best among humanity. In fact, quite, quite the contrary. First Corinthians chapter 1, how many of you were noble? How many of you were in positions of authority? How many of you had something to offer God? The answer to that is none of us had anything to offer God. Quite the contrary. We were unlovable, and yet God accepted us as we were. The Bible tells us Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not accept him, did not welcome him, did not receive him. Yet to all who did accept him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And now children of God who, as we're going to see, are in his family and now charged with the duty of showing his character by being accepting, inviting, receiving, welcoming people. We love and we forgive and we accept all because God does. I have a fourth thing in your outline. We care because God cares. 
The Bible tells us the Lord is compassionate. The Bible tells us that He is a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in His holy dwelling. So we care because God does. God is that kind of God, and we reflect His character back to Him and to a watching world. This care of God extends, according to the Bible, as we're going to see, all the way into eternity past. One aspect, one very important aspect of God's care and compassion for His creation is the fact that He's a father to the fatherless, that He gives home and family to those who have none. God, in the words of Scripture, adopts. He cares enough that He's a God who adopts. And this adoption goes all the way back to eternity past. Ephesians chapter 1 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Now notice this. In love He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. When did that happen? He predestined before the world began, before the foundation of the world. And so I say here, we care because God does. And one major aspect of God demonstrating that care is the fact that He is a father to the fatherless and gives homes to those who have none, that He adopts. But instead of saying we adopt because God adopts, I say we care because God does, and I do that for this reason. Because it is one extremely important but one aspect of God's caring heart. And what I want to communicate to us, church, is this, that we are to be a community of care, each of us participating in that care in different ways. God will call, is calling right now, people to engage in adoption. God will call people to become foster parents. But God is calling all of us to support that end. We are to be a community of care. We care and participate in that compassion and care because God does. So why do we do this? I ask in the outline. Why should we be a community of care? Because it reflects God's character. Secondly, in your outline, because it reflects God's mission. God's mission. Ephesians 1 says that this choosing for adoption into the family of God took place before the foundation of the world. We're going to see that this adoption, this choosing of us to be in God's family, though we were outside His family, involved both the fa- not only the Father, but the Son and the Holy Spirit as well. That's why I say in your outline, it reflects God's mission, a mission that involved the Father. We were promised by the Father. Now, why do I say that? Because Titus chapter 1 says this. Paul, opening this letter to Titus, Paul who wrote it says, I'm a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, now notice, promised before the beginning of time. So I say here, we were promised by the Father. 
And here Paul says that these elect, for, for whom his ministry is designed, these elect, these people who are designed to come to God and be adopted into his family, were promised before the beginning of time. And the question is promised to whom? I mean, before the beginning of time, who's around to be promised? And to be promised to? And yet this same Paul, in one of his other letters, the second letter to Timothy, says in the opening chapter there these words and gives us the answer to whom this promise of people who would come to God and be in his family was given. He says, He saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Same phrase, before the beginning of time. As in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, this promise was made before the beginning of time, and the promise was made by God the Father to God the Son. There is going to be a people that I am going to give to you that will be a people of our very own to reflect God. And that's why Jesus said, on the night before he died, in his prayer to the Father, Jesus says in the opening verses of John chapter 17, Father, the hour has come. I have glorified you on earth. Now restore to me the glory that I had with you from before the foundation of the world. And then he says this, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have obeyed your word. Well, when did he give them? He gave them back in eternity past. God the Father to God the Son. And Jesus then came as part of that mission. Jesus said earlier in his earthly ministry, this is the will of him who sent me, the Father, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up the last day. So why are we a community of care? It reflects God's character, but it reflects God's mission. And that mission involves God the Father promising a people to God the Son. And I say in your outline as well, we were not only promised by the Father, we were secured by the Son. The Father promises to the Son, and the Son comes at a point in time 2,000 years ago in order to carry out that mission in time that was planned in eternity to secure those given to him by the Father. That's why I've asked you to turn to Galatians 4. Because this speaks now of Jesus' mission to secure those whom God has given. Verse 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, do you remember in Ephesians chapter 1, we were predestined to adoption. Now the Son has come to execute that plan, that we might actually receive adoption to sonship. Because, verse 6, you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are His child, God has made you also an heir. If you get your mind around, as best you can, what the Bible teaches and what I'm packaging for you, I hope, in an understandable way, if you'll get your mind around that, 
then it will explain for you passages that you've read in Scripture and you can blithely read over those and not think about the import, the significance of what they say. One example of that is Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. Notice what it says on the screen. In bringing many sons and daughters, children, into the family, it was fitting that God, actually, literally, it was required, necessary that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect, that is, mature in his earthly life through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy, that would be us. So the one who makes holy is Jesus. The ones who are made holy are us. And they are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. And then it goes on to say, he says, Jesus, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. God the Son secured what God the Father had planned in what he did when he came to earth. Now, Galatians chapter 4 tells us what he did. When the time had fully come, he was born of a woman. Now, why is it necessary that it specifies he was born of, born of a woman. It's not just a throwaway phrase. It's absolutely necessary in order for Jesus to be the substitute for us that he be one of us. So he's fully God, but he became fully man, one unique person, the God-man. But he became fully man in order that he could do what we failed to do. He could live the life that we failed to live. And he could die the death that we deserve. And he could only do that because he could be our substitute, fully human, born of a woman. Then it says he was born under the law. He succeeded in obeying the law where everyone else had failed. Jesus was born a child of the law. You remember when Jesus was first born. When he was born, that the first, one of the first places you find him is, and his parents are at the temple. And they were there when he's eight days old to offer sacrifice according to the law. And they offered the sacrifice of a poor family. They couldn't offer lamb, and so they offered two, two pigeons as a sacrifice. It's because they were under the law. Do you remember, we next find Jesus at age 12, in all likelihood at his bar mitzvah. The word bar mitzvah means literally to become a son of the law. And Jesus is there at the temple confounding the elders and the priests. Jesus, his entire life, lived under the law, and Jesus and Jesus alone obeyed God's law perfectly. And so he was born of a woman and born under the law, and here's why. Now he can redeem those who never kept the law completely. No one had ever done that, but now he can buy them out, redeem out of slavery to sin, and bring them into his family so that they might, verse 5, receive adoption to sonship. So we were promised by the Father and secured by the Son. And I say in your outline, sealed by the Spirit. Sealed by the Spirit. Just a page or two over, 
Ephesians chapter 1 again in your Bible. You see that verses 13 and 14 tell us what happened now as a result of earlier in that chapter we read that God has predestined and adopted in eternity past and given us all every spiritual blessing in Christ. But then you come down to verse 13 and it says, having believed now, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so we were given now, as we come to having believed, the one who has come to secure the salvation that was promised by the Father to the Son, He secures that, we hear that message, we respond in belief, and we are given God the Spirit as a seal that we belong to Him. So what was all of this for? It was for adoption. (laughs) And we've got the seal. It's kind of like the Spirit is our adoption papers. That says, I belong to God the Father. And so why should we, community, Bible church, be a community of care? It reflects God's character. It reflects God's mission that involved God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And thirdly, in your outline, it reflects our salvation. You see, when, when we engage in orphan care, and all sorts of of care, but in particular orphan care. And whether we as individuals or families adopt directly or we support those who are so doing, as we as a community participate in that, it's a beautiful reflection of the salvation that we've been given. Now, why do I say that? Verse 7 of Galatians 4 says, You are no longer a slave but God's child. And since you are His child, God has made you also an heir. You see, in our salvation, what God does is bring us out of slavery to sin and into the freedom of life in His Son and in His family. We were slaves, but He has brought us out of that. And that should remind you of something earlier in your Bible, the Exodus. Your salvation is really the ultimate exodus. Redeeming you out of bondage in Egypt, out of bondage to sin, and into freedom in the land of God, the home of God, and the family of God. In fact, this is what the Bible tells us about part of what motivated God to intervene on behalf of His people enslaved in Egypt. Exodus chapter 4 says this, The Lord was concerned about them, and had seen their misery. The Bible tells us over and over, when Jesus saw the crowds, He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless as sheep having no shepherd. That's the heart of God. That's the way God looked at us, and God was moved to save, deliver, rescue us as He did His people from Egypt. And in turn, Because that's the kind of deliverance, rescue, salvation we've been given, we now can reflect that in the way we care for other people in rescuing them. And that's why James chapter 1 says this, Religion that God our Father accepts, as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted from the world. 
James ruins the idea that all of this fatherless and care for orphans and all that stuff's all Old Testament stuff. Last I checked, James is in your New Testament. And religion that God our Father accepts, a community of faith, a church that God looks on with favor, is the kind of community that gives help to the helpless and looks with compassion on those who are in any type of need and in affliction. That's what God did to us as we were brought out of slavery. Brought out of slavery. But then brought into God's family. Brought out of slavery, brought into God's family. It means that we've been brought into a close personal relationship with Him. Though we were at one time rebels on death row awaiting our execution date, God pardoned us. He adopted us and brought us into His family. This also means, dear friends, in the salvation that God planned in eternity past, the Son executed, the the, the Spirit seals, that we now have complete access to the Father. In both Romans chapter 8 and Galatians 4, we're told we can now call God Abba, Father. Just as Mama or Dada is the first elemental word that many children learn to speak in the ancient Near East where Aramaic was the everyday language of the Jews in the New Testament, Abba was a word roughly equivalent to that. Jesus spoke Aramaic when He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and that the Father might have the cup of death passed from Him. He prayed, Abba. Jesus had the closest of relationships with His Father going to eternity past. He calls Him Abba and now we are bid. Pray, our Abba, who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. And cry out, Abba, Father. But there's more than that. In both Romans 8 and Galatians 4, it refers to adoption to sonship. When the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born under the law, verse 5, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now that phrase, adoption to sonship, it's been translated that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because hear this, it's not talking about adoption of an infant or a small child, as as is most often the case today. But in Roman culture, in New Testament days, adoption referred to the practice of wealthy but childless couples adopting a worthy young man to be their heir and carry on the family name. Now here's what that means to us. Although we come into the family of God as born-again babes in Christ that need to mature, we also, from the very first minute, have the full rights and privileges of full-grown sons and daughters. Thanks be to God. And so whether we're babes in Christ or whether we're mature believers, we all have the same privilege of addressing God as Abba, Father. Do you remember after Jesus had died, after He was in the grave, after He raised, His disciples were distraught. Several had gone to the tomb to find out what had happened. One of those was none other than the notorious uh, Mary Magdalene. And she came to look for him, and he appeared to her, but she didn't recognize him. And then he identified himself, and immediately she began to, to embrace him. Do you remember what Jesus said to her? Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to who? My brothers and sisters. 
and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and Mary to your father as well. Jesus is saying, I came to adopt a people that have been given to me. And that mission has been accomplished. They are my brothers and sisters. And my father is their father as well. I'm almost finished. Friends, I want you to know that if we as a church undertake this, and, and we will by God's grace, then it will not, it will not be easy. Mercy ministry is never easy. God does not call us to a life of ease, but a life of sacrifice, as did Jesus. And I want to read for you an excerpt from a book that I highly recommend to you. In fact, we have copies of it in our resource center. It's called Adopted for Life by Russell Moore. Russell Moore and his wife adopted two boys from Russia. Here's what he says. The first time I ever saw these two boys, they were lying in excrement and vomit covered in heat blisters and flies in an orphanage somewhere in a little mining community in Russia. Maria and I had applied to adopt and had gone on the first of two trips, not knowing who, if anyone, we would find waiting for us. Immediately immediately upon landing in the former Soviet Union, I wondered if we had made the worst mistake of our lives, sitting in a foreign airport with the smell of European perfume, human sweat, and cigarette smoke wafting all around us, Maria and I recommitted to God that we would trust Him and that we would adopt whomever He directed us to, regardless of what medical or emotional problems they may have. A Russian judge told us he had two, quote, gray-eyed boys picked out for us, both of whom had been abandoned by their mothers to a hospital in the little village about an hour away from where we were staying. Sure enough, the orphanage authorities, through our translators, cataloged a terrifying list of medical problems, including fetal alcohol syndrome for one, if not both of the boys. We looked at each other as if to say, this is what the Lord has for us, so here we go. The nurse led us up some stairs, down a dank hallway, and into a tiny room with two beds. I can still see the younger of the two, now Timothy, rocking up and down against the bars of his crib, grinning widely. The older, now Benjamin, was more reserved, stroking my five o'clock shadow with his hand and seeing, I came to realize, a man most probably for the very first time in his life. Both the boys had hair matted down on their heads, and one of them had crossed eyes. Both of them moved slowly and rigidly, almost like stop-motion clay-animated characters from the Christmas television specials of our 1970s childhoods. And we loved them both at an intuitive and almost primal level from the very first second. He goes on to talk about what God has done in the lives of not only him and his wife, but the lives of those boys as well. You look at that scene, you think about that scene, and then you think about how we look to God. And yet God has demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Our God, our Savior, has sacrificed to bring us into his family. And he is calling us as a community to sacrifice for those who have no family. And friends, we are going to pray about that together. 
We've got families, Pastor Matt and Erica are in the process of doing that now. We've got others who have come to me who have said, I'm thinking about that by God's grace. I'm praying about that. And we want to join with them and partner with them in that. Missy is going to come next hour and tell us some of the ways that we can do that. But I give as your take-home truth in your outline. We should be a community of care because it reflects who God is and it reflects what God has done. 